want to read the first six verses of Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out from the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And you shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. All right, let's pray. O Lord, we come with thanksgiving for this Sabbath day for that which we have already heard and learned from thy word. We pray indeed that that message would have entrance into each of our hearts and that we would know what it is to live in that reality of thy providential hand. And Lord, as we come together now in these few moments, we pray that thou would direct our thoughts and that this discussion will be profitable for us as we come together so we commit this time into thy hands for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the context that we have read, as Joshua was about to lead the people into the promised land, going to cross over the Jordan on dry ground, he instructed the men of each tribe to take a stone, and as they passed over the Jordan, they were to erect a memorial. And the purpose of this was to teach the future generations what it is that God had done in delivering them into this promised land. So what mean these stones? What mean these stones? And the generations to come were to look at that artifact and to learn something about what God had done for the people in years past. And that is introducing the theme that I want to address. I have a few sessions with you over the next some weeks. A little different than what we have normally done, but I think it will be profitable, I trust, for us. I want us to consider a little bit here about the world of the Bible, about the world in which God sent his word. Bible did not come down into earth, all in one piece, leather bound and ready to go. It became in parts through a series of years. And it was given to real people at real times, facing real circumstances. And the more we can understand something of the context, 
the historical context uh, in which God gave his words. It will, in some ways, at least illumine our minds, help us to understand some things that otherwise might be seemingly a bit strange for us. So we're going to be talking about the world of the Bible. I thought about this particularly in the context we have a trip planned for Israel this coming May. Some of you are going on that. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the world uh, of the Bible and seeing some things there that will really open our eyes and increase our appreciation uh, for what it is the Lord has done. And I trust the light will shine on that discussion as the light just came uh, to us here. Uh, so the world of the Bible. Now, I want to start with some presuppositions. We understand that the Bible reveals timeless and universal truths. And the Bible does not need any external proof. It does not need any external confirmation. The Bible is sufficient in itself. It is timelessly relevant, even though it was written so many thousands of years ago. Uh, and so I want to begin with that. We're going to be looking at some archaeological data uh, that gives some parallels to what we see in the, uh, in the biblical scriptures. Uh, but I want to make it clear that I don't need archaeology and I don't need any record from the past uh, to prove the authenticity and the authority and the accuracy and the truth of God's word. It stands by itself. I don't need some external evidence that there was a universal flood. Uh, it's not evidence that convinces of the truth. And even if they were to discover next week uh, on one of the mountains there in Ararat, uh, a ark that was signed by Noah himself. This really is my ark. Uh, that wouldn't do anything uh, to authenticate the word of God. The Bible stands by itself. So we're not looking at this as a means of seeking to prove the Bible. We're not looking at it as a means to increase uh, our confidence in the Bible. The Bible stands as God's word, as God's truth, completely independent of any external evidence. But get it as an ancient book. Uh, and <clears throat> I say it was a message that was given to real people that lived in a real world that was not like the world in which we live. Uh, the biblical world was uh, different from ours uh, in terms of culture, uh, in terms of uh, practices, in terms even of how the truth was applied. Uh, in particular situations. Uh, and there are those elements that we have to face. And I have people ask me all the time, and I have students ask me, what, what is this? Why, why does God say this? Uh, and, and there are some things in the Bible uh, that from a surface perspective seem to be outdated. Uh, some of them seem to be culturally offensive to us. Um, don't wear garments of mixed material. Yeah, okay. Uh, why? Because I'm the Lord your God. Well, my guess is that almost, I, I would assume that every one of us here today uh, is violating that biblical principle. Uh, I have... I, I think it's silk. My, my tie is silk, yeah. 
and my shirt is cotton, and my suit here is some kind of a blend of some sort. Uh, on that basis, I stand in violation of, of, of Leviticus 19. Uh, no. All right, there's something. What was going on? Can we understand why the Lord told the people uh, there to not wear garments of mixed material? Why did the Lord tell us, uh, people, don't round off the corners of your beard when you shave? Uh, that was part of God's law. On the surface, we throw it, eh, that doesn't apply to us. Or what? But there are some principles there that if we can put it within the context in which the Lord gave that particular instruction, uh, it will indeed illumine uh, our understanding. So there's something about the ancient world in which the Bible uh, was given uh, that will help us to identify uh, the relevancy. Why did God reveal what he did in the way that he did? But I emphasize, I emphasize the truth is timeless and truth is universal. Truth does not change. Truth did not evolve from one status in the Old Testament to a different status in the New Testament. Truth is singular, and truth is universal, and truth is timeless. But the ancient setting, the ancient setting in which God revealed that truth does not correspond to the modern setting in which, uh, in which we are living today. So how do we, how do we make that transition? How do we make that transition between the then of the Old Testament, the then of the New Testament, and the now of where we live? And sometimes knowing something about that historical context uh, that we can learn from secular history, that we can learn from, that we can learn from archaeological data, uh, will help us to extract uh, that particular truth. So I trust this will be somewhat of a profitable uh, experience for us. So we'll be looking at some of the archaeological data. Uh, archaeology is just the uncovering of stuff of the past, right? It's going to be uh, in, in two forms. The archaeological data is going to be in two forms. It's either, can I give you, I'm going to use a couple of words here, all right? Uh, it's either going to be epigraphic or unepigraphic. Yeah, I went to school to learn that. Uh, epigraphic simply means something that is written, all right? Something that is written on epigraphic is stuff that is not written, just objects. Here's a clay pot or here's whatever. Uh, here, here's the walls of Jericho. Uh, just, just some object that will elicit for us some information. Uh, written material uh, is going to be very fascinating uh, as well. So it's going to help us basically in four areas, two of which I will... Uh, really focus on uh, with you in these uh, particular sessions. Uh, it's going to give us some background information, background into uh, the customs, uh, into the life of the ancient Near East that will help us see something of why things were done uh, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll look at there's an old site called Nutsi, it's what we now know as uh, in uh, in Iraq, on uh, the, the east side of uh, the, the Tigris, a uh, little site called Nutsi. And there were hundreds of cuneiform tablets, texts, uh, that were discovered there that 
sometimes dealing with their religious notions, sometimes dealing with their, uh, with, with their everyday uh, circumstances, cultural things. But they date to the time of Moses and before going all the way back uh, to the time of Abraham. And it explains some things. Now, it doesn't justify, but it explains some things. Uh, perhaps why Abraham did what he did. For instance, it's always been a, a strange thing, right? Uh, when Abraham receives the promise from God that he's going to have an heir, going to be a, a son that will be the heir of the promise, and Abraham gets old and Sarah gets old, and uh, the older they get, the promise is not there. And so Sarah comes to Abraham one day, says, Abraham, I got an idea. Let, let's do this. Here's Hagar by hand. May you marry her too. And have this. Seems strange to us, doesn't it? Uh, I, I couldn't imagine Sandra doing anything like that, right? Uh, it, it's a strange thing. Uh, why would Sarah come? And why would Abraham agree to it? Why would Abraham agree to it? The bonds of marriage were uh, set for us in, in Genesis, made it very clear that marriage was between one man, one woman. Uh, but a very strange thing, uh, that he was taking this matter now into his own hands to, to get the seed of the promise. Strange thing, it seems to us. Well, it's interesting that in, in, in some of the Nutsi material, uh, we have what today I guess we would call these, what, what do they call it? These prenuptial agreements, right? These prenuptial agreements uh, where a contract was made between the would-be bride and the husband. Uh, many times that you have X number of years to give me a son, or if you don't give me a son, then we bring somebody else in to do the deal. All right? So this was a common practice. It was a common practice in Abraham's day. Now, I say that not to justify what Abraham did, in some ways, I think it indicates that it was it made his sin worse uh, than what it was, uh, because now he is just living like the world is living. But it does put it within a framework uh, in which we can at least see where Sarah got that. Uh, what for us is a very strange, uh, very strange idea. So it illumines something, and we can multiply uh, examples, uh, examples here. Uh, so background information, cultural things that will help us to explain why it is that God said what he said. Uh, don't round out the corners of your beard. I'm the Lord your God. What, what's the purpose of that? Well, we know from archaeological stuff, from various uh, statues and various, that, that were, have been found, that the Canaanites, and this is where Israel is about to enter in, the Canaanites, in whose land now Israel was going to be dwelling, had very well-sculptured beards, very well-sculptured beards. And in essence, the Lord is saying, now when you get into this land, you're my people. You're going to, live, you're going to be different than the people of this world. You have to be separate from the world, right? Now, I can learn some things there. When, when I read that then and I can see that God's intent and the purpose for saying that was that you're going to be in the world, the world looks this way, you're my people, you're my covenant people, and you are not going to look like the world. You're not going to behave like the world. And God is giving very specific instructions, grooming instructions there, as to how that ought to be uh, implemented in that culture. Now, the truth is the same. The truth is that my people are going to be separate from the world. 
I don't care what age you live in. I don't care what culture you live in. It is God's demand that his people are different from the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, John says. Now, what's that look like? What does that look like in my day? It may look different. All right? It may look different in my day than it did in Moses' day. But the truth is the same. Truth is singular. Truth is singular. But listen now, the application of truth... The application of truth is going to be multifaceted. The application of truth is going to look different in this setting, in the, depending upon the circumstances of, of the day. But, so, but it helps me, right? As I, as I read Leviticus 19 now, and I see all these strange things that God was prohibiting uh, his people from doing. Put it within the context. Uh, of what the world looked like in that day. Okay, this is why God, uh, this is why God uh, is saying, uh, you take the Nazarite vow. You take the Nazarite vow. Don't cut your hair. I, think, I may have told this before, I don't know. But, uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid, there was a certain culture now that was coming up. That, uh, I remember it was, it was in ninth grade. This is a long time ago. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, uh, but long hair was just starting to come out, you know, and I had this, it became my conviction. I, I tried to tell my dad that, you know, I, 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 I want to be a Nazarite. Yeah, I want to be a Nazarite. Uh, and uh, in, in that culture, it was a sign of holiness. In that culture, it was a sign of dedication unto the Lord. And I said, Dad, I, 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 I be a Nazarite. No, my dad didn't buy that. All right. Because in that culture, when I was in ninth grade, uh, yeah, your, your holiness was, was, was determined by, by where your sideburns were. Uh, yeah, and, and so that's how my dad disciplined me back in those days. Every time I did something bad, I got a haircut. That was that, that was the way he disciplined. Uh, didn't buy it. Because holiness looked different. To have long hair back in that day, you know, you're a hippie. You don't know what hippies are anymore. Uh, a whole different culture, right? So the, the application of the truth looked different, but it was the same truth. It was the same truth. And so when I look at all of these very specific things that God gives to me and, and says in his word, before we just chuck it away and say, that was for then, and, and we're, it doesn't mean, there's a principle there. And the more we can understand about the setting in which God gave that instruction, uh, then it'll help us understand why. So customs, customs, uh, background, life, that kind of thing. And also ancient Near Eastern history, uh, the historical accounts. Um, I just read something from Joshua here. And in, in the book of Joshua, we have, uh, we have this instruction that gives to us the record of the conquest uh, as Joshua is leading the armies into uh, the land of Canaan, and we see Jericho first, and then they go here, and they go here, and uh, all of these little independent uh, battles. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I don't need anything else really to help me understand what was going on in that conquest, but yet at the same time, there's some interesting stuff out there uh, that uh, does help explain why even Joshua... Uh, fought battle of Jericho first, the way that was fought, and then 
the other aspect of the campaign. Uh, we have this whole cache of, uh, again, cuneiform, cuneiform tablets. Cuneiform, just taking a, just a, a clay tablet, and they would take like a stylus and make lines and wedges and uh, uh, call it cuneiform, uh, that come from Armana, a little place in Egypt. These are letters, and there are a bunch of letters that were sent from Palestinian cities, Canaanite cities. They were sent from the cities in, uh, in Palestine to Egypt asking for help. Help against these people that are coming in, and they call them Habiru. These people that are the Habiru that are coming into our land, and they're ransacking everything, they're pillaging everything, they're taking everything. We need help. We need help. Uh, assistance to fight these Habiru. Well, it's interesting that those letters date at exactly the same time as the conquest of Palestine by Joshua. And what we have in those is a Palestinian perspective, a Palestinian perspective of what we read in the book of Joshua. Uh, and we see something of the political structure uh, of, of the land that uh, is remarkable that when you make that parallel to what we see in the Old Testament account, uh, as to why God conquered Jericho first, right? They cross over the land, and Jericho is the first thing they do. And remember from the spies' account, from the spies' account that the whole population, the whole uh, structure of uh, Canaan was these walled cities, walls that were high to heaven, people that were expert in chariot warfare and uh, very fearful people. And, and the spies then you know, gave the report and they ended up walking around the desert for 40 years because they, of their disbelief. They did not, did not enter into the land. But we know from the political structure of, of Canaan that there was no capital city. Right? There was no, all, remember, Moses says, you're going to go into these nations and he mentions the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Girgashites and seven nations greater and mightier than you. It was not just one nation in, in Canaan, but it was a combination of all of these little kingdoms, several kingdoms. And I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid reading the Bible and, and here's the king of Jericho and here's the king of Lachish and here's the king of Dan and here's the king. All these cities having their king. And I, I remember saying as a kid, you know, they must mean mayor, right? They really must be mayor, the mayor of Jericho and the mayor. No, they were kings. And we know now from this political structure of all of these independent city-states uh, that were independent one from the other. They were fighting each other all the time to see who could increase their little bits of border. Uh, but it was a, they, that's why they were so good at warfare. But all these independent city-states. So it's not that you conquer one city and, you know, that you, you conquer the nation. You con the fact that Jericho was conquered had nothing to do with I. That had nothing to do with all of these independent and typically warfare in that day. Typically warfare in that day was by laying siege against a city. All these walled cities, you try to keep, you, you surround them. You, you keep them from going out to get supplies and you keep supplies from going. You, you, you lay siege against them and it would take sometimes years sometimes years to conquer a particular city uh, by, by that means. So what does God do? God says, here's, how, here, here's what we're going to do. You go, you go to Jericho, 
And, and you take the Ark of the Covenant, and you march around that city for seven days. And on the seventh day, you march around it seven times, blow your horn, and see what happens. And the walls, the walls extended right down in the earth, and every man went straight ahead. And Jericho fell then. Jericho fell by that miraculous and that supernatural intervention uh, of God. Uh, they didn't have to, demonstrating that the Lord is in control, that the Lord indeed is powerful, and here now is a people to whom he is giving this land, and all they have to do is march around the city, blow a horn, the walls come, the walls come down. So Jer Jericho fell miraculously. But after Jericho was I. After Jericho was I. But they didn't do it the same. They had a fight against I. And they said, well, and they made a mistake, right? They made a mistake. Achan had got his issue in there and caused sin. We'll maybe talk about that uh, later. But uh, they had to fight the battle. After Jericho was I, and after I was another. And all of these, all of these battles, all of these battles. And why? Because they're independent city-states. But then what happens? This is interesting. Here's the providence of God. In chapter 9 of Joshua, remember you have all these kings now, all these cities that are coming together. They are allying themselves together now against Joshua's armies. Now that was unheard of. That was absolutely unheard of in that day because all these cities were independent one from the other. They were fighting against themselves all the time. But now with this common enemy that comes in and our defenses are no longer operative, all they have to do, this people, is march around, blow a horn, and we're done. So, so they come out. They come and they ally themselves together and they come out into the open field. Now that had to be scary for Israel when it was happening because Israel, they, they, they weren't expert in, in warfare yet. Uh, it had to be a scary thing when all of these nations now come together uh, and, and fight against Joshua. But can you see the hand of God in that in a, in a, a day battle? Now it, it had to be day the sun stood still, day the sun stood still, and the moon stood still. So the Lord intervened certainly. But now in one single battle, this whole, all of these cities were conquered in one day, which would have taken year after year after year after year. Now, I'm saying from the Armana tablets and what we know about the city structure state, uh, it, it gives me some appreciation, if nothing else, but illumines, it gives some illumination uh, as to, the, as to the, the nature of the conquest. So a lot of stuff like that. Now, I, I want to talk about history because when we look at the historical accounts, secular historical accounts, uh, Armana letters and later on a bunch of other stuff. Uh, we get a different view of history uh, than what we see in the Bible. And the critics, the critics, those that disbelieve the Bible, whenever there is a disagreement between what the Bible says and what some ancient source says, they are invariably going to side with the ancient source and say the Bible's wrong. I'm going to be arguing with you that when those conflicts occur, and they will occur, there are disagreements between the secular accounts and the biblical accounts. But in every instance, the Bible is right, right? The Bible is right. Uh, that's my starting point. My starting point, my presupposition as I come to the Bible, that whatever it says is right, whatever it says is true. Uh, that's where we start. There's our presupposition. 
Uh, and then we have this which seems to contradict it. Let's figure out what, uh, what the nature of that contradiction uh, is. So I want to talk a little bit. We'll do that next time I'm here. I think, it's, I think I'm here next week. Uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the nature of history and how this is going to factor in. And we'll take a look at various things. I, I've got four or five sessions with you, I think, um, over the next little while. And I, I, I trust this. It's a little different than what we normally do. Uh, ancillary to looking at a text, but we'll bring in the text and show you this, that, and the other that I hope will uh, whet your appetite to uh, go to Israel. That'll be good. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Our dear Lord, we are thankful for thy word and the truth of it, the absolute authority of it. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at aspects of that ancient world, that it will increase our appreciation for thy good hand and thy powerful hand uh, that has interrupted the affairs of time and circumstance uh, to give to us thy precious thy precious revelation. So we commit this time, Lord, into thy hands. Let it be a profitable uh, study for us. So we commit it into thy hands or thy glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.